Welcome back to the Dispatch Podcast, official podcast of the Battle Franklin Trust. I am, we're at Ripa Villa, and I am seated with Bill Clark and Assistant Curator Bailey Lawrence. We are all sitting around our table in the non-air-conditioned portion of the wing of Ripa Villa. So, what are we going to talk about? Secession. Wait, Secession. what? No. Wait. Yeah, we talked about this yesterday, Secession. Secession. Yes, like the secession of the southern states. In fact, today, June 8th, look at that. Did you prepare for something different? All of my notes are for succession, HBO's I hate drama that I, I just finished. Is this your, your joke? joke? Yes. I hate you so yes. much. All my notes are about the Roy family, so I am not prepared for this. I'm not going to spoil who became the CEO in case any of our listeners are not caught up. But I was ready to talk about the Logan family, so I'm sorry. All right. Well, sorry. Um, we're talking about secession. All right. If that was the joke that you texted about last night, I'm really upset with you. It was. Yeah. yeah. It was. That's terrible. I've been waiting on that. It's too early in the morning I've been for waiting that. on that. I mean, Microsoft Word always tries to change secession to succession anyways. <laughs> it so. does. <laughs> There's no winning. Word processor screws up. Bill screws up. We're all on the same page. Um, so, and speaking so, of like just not being able to escape the Civil War, uh-huh. I was watching Ken Burns Vietnam, and there, and then you were like, uh, "I have time to watch Ken Burns the Civil War." No, no, <laughs> no. But then I started on a rabbit trail and uh, started looking up photos, and then found photos of Vietnam soldiers, U.S. soldiers in Nam with Confederate battle flags, and mm-hmm. I was like, "Can't even escape it in Vietnam. It's still Civil it War, is still always here. with me. It is everywhere I go." <laughs> It kind of makes you wonder if we're living in like a simulation and the like the, the AI simulator that we're in just knows like, oh, there's Civil War. So we'll just make everything in their life revolve around the Civil War somehow, some way. All three of us like Star Wars. Galactic Civil War. This is true. That is true. But they didn't have a secession crisis. <clears throat> but they did the have a confederacy. This is true. And Different. Weren't the Confederate state, the Confederate uh, planets? No. Breaking apart no. from no. Bill. Yeah, they Bill. technically did Bill. because they were Bill. once in the Senate. Yes, so they had their own secession. We just worked Star Wars into a secession and episode. They also had neutral planets. They did, like Kentucky. Yeah. You know, the last time we did this, it went on for about 15 minutes, and some people just turned it off and said they didn't want to hear a podcast about the Civil War that was about Star Wars. To them, I say, I'm sorry. I mean, this is just what we do. Either that or I bash the Houston Astros. You got two choices. <laughs> You got two choices. <laughs> so if you're a Texan who likes the Astros and does not like Star Wars, we are. This is not the this podcast This is not for, for you. you. <laughs> I never thought we would alienate an entire section of the listener base, but whatever. Um, so we are going to talk about secession. Yes. Um, that period from late 1860 through the spring of 1861 where we see this kind of rash, this wave of, of secession sweep across the southern slaveholding states. Uh, and by February, they began to form a provisional Confederate government. And by June, in fact, today, June 8th, 1861, Tennessee uh, voters go and they decide on the referendum for secession. And we become the 11th and final state to leave the Union. They voted 69.8% in favor of secession. That's, I mean, that's up from the 52-ish percent uh, in February to stay. So that's 
Look at you. You're very proud that you went and found that, aren't you? I am. For all of your notes about succession, you found the numbers. I did the numbers. Right? I did the numbers. See, I actually thought the number was a lot higher. Or maybe it just increased by 80%. The the exact number was uh, $108,408 to $46,996. Do they have a breakdown of the demographic of where it came from each state? I did not do that. Okay. Sorry, I was a stats person. I was was trying to find But I do know like (laughs) 60% of East Tennessee votes in favor of staying in the union. Mm -hmm. There is actually a really good map. Um, I think it's available through the Tennessee State Museum. It shows all the different counties and how they voted. And Tennessee is the only state that takes it to a vote. Yeah. They don't have a uh, secession convention. convention. Well, they, they do have a convention. They write the yeah. ordinances, and yep. then they put it out to the public to vote. Yeah. So I think we're we're cart before the horse here uh, a bit. <laughs> so what happens in the We do live in Tennessee, Tennessee, so we kind of jumped the gun on that. We were a little excited to talk about our state. Yeah. So maybe we start off by talking about what precedes secession. And, I mean... We could have started this episode in 1776. We could start this episode in 1787. We could start talking about this in 1800. with John C. Fremont, the first Republican. We have a long way to go. We can start talking about 1820. Yeah. Calhoun. Yeah. Calhoun. Yeah. Yeah. 1830. The, and that is a good starting point, is the nullification crisis. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, when he writes the exposition of South Carolina, Calhoun essentially says, well, the federal government doesn't have the authority to tell a state what to do. Mm-hmm. That's not what we agreed to. And then Jackson's like, like hell. <laughs> the thing is, he, he planted the quote. seed. He planted the seed. Well, nullification is, and I think you had made this point yesterday, is how it, it starts out as this kind of regional idea. Well, this government can do what it wants. It doesn't have to listen to the state. Which, of course, Jackson's great quote in the entire exchange is, armed resistance to federal authority is treason. Mm -hmm. Uh, But then it becomes that idea that nullification is there, and it goes from this idea of sort of southern independence Mm -hmm. becomes transformed into southern nationalism. Mm -hmm. Uh, or Southern regionalism, and then becomes Southern nationalism by the time we get to 1860 and 61. And it goes through that kind of hardening period, from nullification just kind of being this innocently floated idea. And Calhoun, in his reasoning, however contrived as it was, argued, he said, nullification is the answer to secession. It will avoid secession altogether. We'll never have to leave the Union if we can just nullify laws. And then it becomes, well, you know, let's just abandon the whole nullification idea altogether and just secede from the union mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and that goes through calhoun it goes through james hammond and then eventually it goes to jefferson davis why are you sitting there like your mind just got blown oh. i'm just listening i'm just trying to take it all in it's still <clears throat> early for me i mean y'all were the ones that decided at eight o'clock okay <laughs> but we had also been through 80 plus years of compromise yep. too you know, that all precedes nullification and then gets us into uh, into the nullification crisis, past the nullification crisis, into the 1840s, and we'll see the Wilmot Proviso proposed, failed. We'll see the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo that gives us all that new territory out west, and then we've got to argue about whether or not slavery can exist there. We're still trying to sort out the old Northwest Ordinance and now the Missouri Compromise, and then eventually we get out to the Compromise of 1850, and by 1854 we come up with that idea of popular sovereignty. We're going to let people vote on whether or not 
uh, they can have a pro-slavery and anti-slavery constitution. And then even that starts to show signs of weaknesses almost immediately. Mm -hmm. And then we go through the last kind of five years of the 1850s where we'll see one after another, after another, after another. Just event that's going to lead us to that spark of war, that kind of tensions continue to bubble. And then in 1859, the meteor of war, uh, John Brown carries out his raid, and then it's 1860, and we elect Abraham Lincoln, and that's what the crisis point yeah. mm-hmm. for Southern slave-holding <clears throat> states. And uh, I, when we were doing a lot of the work on trying to figure out what Nat Shares might have thought about secession, one of the most common newspapers that he would have likely read is the Columbia or the Murray County Observer, a newspaper published in Columbia, and. Uh, the day after Lincoln was elected, the first paragraph opens up, and I'm paraphrasing, but uh, the first paragraph opens up by saying, the northern non-slave-holding states have chosen their president. And then it ends by saying, there is no other option now, the revolution in war, rather. Mm-hmm. They fear Lincoln and the anti-slavery Republican Party more than war, more than death, more than all the fighting that could come of it there's the driver for secession. And we, we had talked a little bit about all of this, but Lincoln's election is that kind of trigger because he is the dark horse candidate. He wasn't expected to get the Republican nomination, and he did. And then he wasn't expected to win, and then he did. Uh, and he was... So Lincoln's despite. election is kind of the, uh, the, the Franz Ferdinand assassination of the Civil War. Civil War. It's the spark that starts it all. Yeah, except only we don't have the the Serbs and the Bosnians to really screw things up to get uh, things rolling, and yeah. there's no series of intertangling <laughs> alliances. And... No, but it happens so quickly after he's elected. Yeah, yeah, I he's mean, elected on November sixth, and then South by, Carolina secedes. Yeah, South Carolina secedes on December twentieth. Yeah, and then and after it's a hundred and sixty nine to zero. Mm-hmm. It's a yeah. unanimous vote for secession. They are yeah. out. I'm, I'm gonna. I'm going to dig on South Carolina for a second because I'm from North Carolina, but they're always the ones that start it. They are. Start with John C. Calhoun, who's from South Carolina, who plants the seed of this idea of secession. And what they're scared of is is an idea. You know, they're scared of the idea of the Republican Mm -hmm. Party having the majority. But what they're also clinging to is an idea that's never really been tried before, which is secession. Yeah. You know. And even during the nullification crisis, there were people like James Madison still alive mm-hmm. who would know a great deal about the Constitution considering that he wrote the bulk of it. <laughs> um, and he said that secession and nullification, they're not legal. There's no, there's no allowance for just saying, all right, well, we're done. There's no arbitrary form mm-hmm. of secession. But he outlines this idea that a state that wanted to secede would have to petition the other states. And if they all approved, then they could do it. Uh, but there's no, there's no allowance for that with South Carolina. They simply just vote and leave. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, I think one of the great newspaper quotes that comes out of that is, uh, South Carolina, too small for a republic, too large for an insane asylum. Mm-hmm. And there goes another state out of our listenership. <laughs> Bam. Okay, so... One thing, I guess, looking back at this, as you guys sent me our outline for today, was going back through and looking at how quickly states leave. We've looked at 80-plus years before this of compromise, and it's just one thing after another, and it's kind of a snowball effect. But the quickest—I've tried to count everything down. But 
from the time that South Carolina secedes to the next state who secedes on January 9th, 1861, which is Mississippi, they're 20 days apart. Mm -hmm. So we've got 20 days where the nation is like, holy crap, can we actually do this? You've got other southern states that are starting to question it, that are starting to hold, you know, conventions and stuff like that about secession, bringing speakers in. And then between January 9th and February 1st, there are six states that leave. That's 24 days. Six states. Yep. Then after that, after Texas leaves, because it's Mississippi, Florida, Alabama, Georgia, Louisiana, and then Texas on February 1st. And then we've got Lincoln's inauguration. Which also means in that period where those six states leave in 24 days, the Buchanan administration in that lame duck Did period nothing. of their president does nothing. No. Nothing. Nothing. They just sit back because they're like, this is this is not our problem right now. Yeah. All this while, is the problem for all the next while guy. Lincoln is trying to maneuver into position to say, hey, uh, please stop. Yeah. Um, please don't do this. Mm-hmm. Please stop. Please stop. Please stop. And then. And that's reflected in his inaugurational speech. Mm-hmm. So. The other Joe, day on tour, I was uh, going to talk about uh, James Buchanan uh-huh. and. I completely forgot his name. It was gone. And I looked at the room, and I had like 25 people on tours. Like, all right, does anyone know the name of the 15th president? You could hear crickets chirp. No one knew his name. And I was like, that is the best description of Buchanan's presidency. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately... Oh, so you finally remembered his name. I did, yeah. But unfortunately, he's forgotten Yeah. when he was terrible. One of the worst presidents. And yeah. luckily, he's forgotten for him. You know, dearest David Stumfel uh, and I were actually talking about that, like that group of presidents that immediately precedes mm-hmm. Lincoln. And he goes, you know, William Harrison was probably the best shot that we had. And he died 30 <laughs> days in. And I was reminded of the Animaniacs song, Know Your Presidents. Yep. And it's William Harrison, how you blame him. The guy was dead in 30 days. Yep. but then he's immediately preceded by a rash of uh, Lincoln's two predecessors Pierce and Buchanan Pierce is sort of a compromiser northern democrat hoping to try and make something work Buchanan just kind of gives up Uh, and to Pierce's credit by the time his presidency ended he was in this kind of manic drunken state he was severely depressed uh, he had lost his only surviving son the year that he was elected. So his life kind of falls to shambles. And then there you go through Buchanan, then you get to Lincoln. And on March the 4th, 1861, you know, because I have to keep these things handy. March 4th, 1861. I think actually Bailey was about to talk about that before no, I interrupted I her with Buchanan. No, I uh, so I didn't want to uh, steal. Impugn upon it. Yes. <laughs> no, Joey, please go ahead. You are the expert in all things Lincoln. Uh, no, I'm not. <laughs> Lincolnite. You can at least pull quotes out of, out of nowhere. I can pull quotes out of nowhere. That's true. All right, so he closes the inaugural address by saying, In your hands, my fellow dissatisfied countrymen, and not mine, is the momentous issue of civil war. The government will not assail you. You have no conflict, or excuse me, you can have no conflict without yourselves being the aggressors. You have no oath registered in the heaven. To destroy the government while I shall have the most solemn oath to preserve, protect, and defend it. I am loath to close. We are not enemies but friends. We must not be enemies. Though passion may have been strained, it must not break our bonds of affection. 
the mystic cords of memory, stretching from every battlefield and patriot grave to the living hardened hearthstone, all over this broad land will yet swell with the chorus of union, when again touched, as surely they will be, by the better angels of our nature. Okay, so the if I wasn't dyslexic, I would want to have a podcast episode where we just read Lincoln quotes. All right. But I'm good. not... Yeah, I'm not going to read... But I don't read out loud. Like, throughout his entire inaugural speech, it's a reflection. Mm-hmm. Like, he has in, intently put in some spots where he's like, I am not going to do this, or I am yep. going to do this, or this is my stance. But it's also more a reflection of the nation and what's happening right now. I mean, he's got seven states that have left the Union by the time that he is inaugurated. And at that time, I think we have... What did I count the other day? I think we had like 30, 33 states and six territories, but we're a coast-to-coast nation. So he loses seven states. And I just had a mental image in my mind of Lincoln sitting in the Oval Office like, they really don't like me. <laughs> well, first of all, more than half of the southern states didn't have him on his ballots. Yeah. They were just like, we're not even, yeah. you're not even a contestant for yeah. us, you know? Mm-hmm. And now so out of four, like, they only represent three. Actually, yeah. Lincoln's in the Oval Office like, why can't we be friends? Why can't no, we no, be stop. friends? Now I'm going to have to put that in to cover over <laughs> your bad singing. I'm going to have to. All right. Okay. But he does, he does continue to try and interject throughout the entire speech saying, slow down. Mm-hmm. Because I flipped right back to it. Nothing valuable can be lost by taking time. If there can be an object to hurry in of you, any of you in hot haste to step, which you would never take de- deliberately, that object will be frustrated by taking time, but no good object can be frustrated by it. In haste, you'll make a terrible decision and you're going to regret it, and I'm going to make sure that you regret it. Mm-hmm. That He warns throughout the mm-hmm. entire thing. And then that's why I love those last two paragraphs, because if you read between the lines, he's begging, pleading. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Don't do this, because if you do, you know what I have to do. Mm-hmm. Yep. That's why I think it's that last possible kind of reach for it. And you've highlighted a bunch of other stuff. Oh, yes. And I've written a bunch of stuff on my, on my pieces of paper here. Now, when I, there's a lot in this. And I, I mean, if you read any president's inaugural speech, some of them are great. Some of them are just, eh. But... We choose to go to the moon. <laughs> That's the best part, because nobody else can remember anything else that he said. Ask not what your country can do for you. And that's it. Other than that, I mean... That's it. Yeah, that's what you got. That is it. I have nothing else to add about his inauguration. You've, you've pretty much covered about it. About Kennedy's? No, not about Kennedy's. Oh, okay. About we got to get Christian for that. I know. I know. <laughs> about Lincoln's. for a month over that one. About Lincoln's, but... 4 a.m. April the 12th, 1861. Fort Sumter happens. The cannons roar. Yes. It's a new book in the bookstore. It is. Yeah. Check that out. Look at that. Never a bad time for a commercial. And I think that actually is a good place for us to stop and put in a commercial. So we'll come right back to it. Perfect. 
Membership with the Battle of Franklin Trust is a partnership to help fulfill the Trust's mission to preserve, understand, and interpret the American Civil War. Annual memberships help with the day-to-day -day operations, including ongoing research, quarterly magazine productions, interpretive staff, museum collection oversight, and visitor programming. In addition, the Battle of Franklin Trust directs a portion of annual memberships to the Battle of Franklin Endowment to plan and prepare for the future needs. Become a member today at boff.org membership. three days until Lincoln calls for troops. I think I did the math right on that one. Yep. Three days. Which, interesting enough, Lincoln calls for 75,000 troops. Mm -hmm. But Stephen Douglas wanted 200,000. Well, the, the expectation was that it would be 75,000, and then over the course of another month, it would grow to 200,000. Yeah. 200, Which is interesting, uh, because I think when you think about the Civil War, you, you tend to kind of forget about Stephen Douglas because he dies very early, very on. early yeah. on. But he is Lincoln's biggest opponent. And then once Lincoln wins, he becomes his biggest supporter. Well, because he realizes... And a rally cry for Lincoln. He realizes what the crisis at hand is. Yeah. You know, even the worst of enemies become best of friends. And I think that that's pretty illustrative of how Lincoln has to deal with all of his team of rivals. Yep. And another book we have in the bookstore. <laughs> yep. Uh, Sorry, I got you to get that book. <laughs> um, but uh, but it's like, how does he work with people from other parties? How does yep. he work with people who politically have always been against him? Uh, and Douglas is another great example. And they that they work together, you know, in quotes, yep. uh, at the beginning of the war is really a testament to putting aside your political identity and your political uh, affiliation and trying to do what's best for the country. And that's, in this moment, save it. Yep. All right, back to you, Bailey. Back to me. Okay, so we okay. just threw a bunch of truth bombs out there. <laughs> yeah. Hand wow. Okay, so let's go with Fort Sumter. That's the you know first shots of the Civil War yep. that we recognize. And, you know, after Lincoln calls for troops on the 15th, Virginia secedes two days later. Mm -hmm. And then right after that, you've got Arkansas that secedes and then North Carolina and then Tennessee's like, well, guess it's time for me to go as well. And, you know, I wonder if... Oh, this could be a hot take. I wonder if Tennessee, if they didn't have Isham Harris mm -hmm. as governor, if they would have seceded. Well, so Tennessee had been visited by a series of um, um, secession convention mm -hmm. or secession commissioners, secession yeah. commissioners um, <clears throat> from its neighboring states, and they basically came here at the behest of Harris, largely. But they were doing this across the southern states as they were seceding. Yeah. It's kind of like a traveling roadshow of, hey, come and. Come join the party. Mm -hmm. We're having, you know, over here. We're having Traveling independence and all this circus. other stuff. A little bit of everything. <laughs> um, Traveling circus. At the risk of alienating yet another portion of the listener base, an Alabama band tour across the country. Okay, never mind. No, but I think at that point, Tennessee is like, okay. I I'm was so going to say Roll Tide, but I couldn't bring myself to do it. And I don't care about college football. It's gross to like, say. I just, I just, I just couldn't. But they come here. They basically <laughs> remind the, they remind the citizens of Tennessee. Remember where your loyalties lie. They don't lie with northern business interests. They don't lie with the Republicans. 
They certainly don't lie with Lincoln. They lie with us, your slave-holding sister states. Mm-hmm. But also Tennessee is surrounded by a sea of Confederacy at that yeah. point. Yeah. Because North Carolina, Alabama, Arkansas, they're gone. They're all gone. And then you've got border state Missouri and border state Kentucky right yeah. above them. Uh, and everybody's watching Kentucky with kind of bated breath. Will they secede? Won't they secede? Will they mm-hmm. secede? Won't they secede? Uh, and Lincoln says, you know, to to lose Kentucky is to lose the lot, to lose the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we'll see why during the war Tennessee yeah. or Kentucky becomes so important. To Which is weird because Kentucky is such a interesting state. They because only became a Confederate state after the war bill. Yeah, no, 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 no. <laughs> no. But what I'm saying is. They're too north for southern states, but they're too south for northern states. Yeah. Like they, they just, just hit that middle. Yeah, they just that hit middle that section. middle ground, mm-hmm. and I'm not dogging on them in any way. It's just like even today, like mm-hmm. politically, they're they're. It's just interesting. It's mm-hmm. odd. Like they are just purely unique, but they are in well, the, the south, the northern and eastern portions of Ohio have more of the kind of business interest, industrial, northern kind of identity. The southern portion has that southern agricultural identity. Mm -hmm. Uh, Really, Illinois is that way, too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Illinois never stood a chance at seceding. (laughs) Yeah, but you do have the the Illinois rebels in the 15th Tennessee. Yeah. Which are fun to talk about whenever you have people from Illinois. Yeah. It's like, hey, there's some Illinois Confederates in this battle. And they're like, what? (laughs) What? (laughs) Anyway... But, no, I don't know the answer to that because we know that Isham Harris was the governor. And yep. I don't know anything that we could dispute it and say, well, you know, if it would have been another governor. I don't know. But Tennessee is, I think, unique among most seceding states in that, like you pointed out, the citizens get to vote. Mm-hmm. And the other part of it is, is that it's a pretty hair kind of uh, hair-splitting tie mm-hmm. And not February. too hard. And then you get that commissioner's kind of influence throughout that period. When they realize period. that they need some kind of influx of, yeah. you know, support. And they're like, hey, who can, whose mind can we change? Well, Harris also did a really, really brilliant job of maneuvering the state to a position where it could never stay in the Union. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and that's what he does. He calls up militias. He starts to train mm-hmm. troops. He starts to kind of be openly hostile to federal uh, uh Federal troops, federal authorities, not in like a a, a, com, a, com, mm-hmm. a combat, like engaged battles, but hostile in messages, hostile in, in, in personal exchanges. Yeah. Uh, and then he maneuvers the entire state out of the Union, and then it just kind of is, is sort of the, the, the June 8th vote is really just this kind of the rubber stamp on everything that he had done for the last few months. Yeah. But, I mean, several critical things have happened. I mean, you said the first vote was in February, correct? Mm-hmm. Okay, so Texas secedes in February 1st, and then you've got, you know, Lincoln's inaugurated, then there's Sumter, and then there's a call for troops, and then you've got four more states that secede after that before, or, sorry, three more states that secede, and then Tennessee is like, okay. It, it's gotta a nail in the coffin at that point. Yeah, got to go now. Yeah. And not to bring this all back to William Bate. Oh, but, Lord, have mercy. There but, is. Bate does Bates a big supporter of Harris, mm-hmm. and well, Bates um, a fire eater too, isn't he? Yeah. yeah, and he rallies men to join the Confederacy, but because Tennessee hadn't seceded yet to get arms, 
he has to go to Virginia mm-hmm. and then come back to Tennessee with mm-hmm. his militia, essentially, to kind of rally support for voting for secession, mm-hmm. which I think is very interesting. Show up with guns and tell people how to vote. Mm. Yeah. Huh. There's, well, that, that's one of the things, too, that gets mentioned is that there's a certain level of coercion that goes in, especially in East Tennessee. Mm-hmm. All right, we know what you did in February. Don't you dare show mm-hmm. up and vote. Uh, against secession this time because we're doing it, all right? And yeah. you're coming along. And then you still see Harris early on, right after Tennessee secedes, he's got to send the provisional Confederate Army of the state of Tennessee out to the eastern portions to put down mm-hmm. efforts to secede from secession. Mm-hmm. Which is where my ancestors are. They're in East Tennessee. Well, and that's the thing. <clears throat> mine are in West Virginia. I know. Mine are in East Tennessee, and they're all real strong unionists. And, <laughs> and the, which and is that, funny because my dad always thought there were Confederates in our family same, tree. Same. I only have, like, East Tennessee uh, unionists, and then a guy from Pennsylvania who was in Kentucky, and then the war broke out and sided with Kentucky unionists. Mm-hmm. But it is an interesting point to point out is that even within the seceding southern states, there's dissent over secession. There's mm-hmm. unionists. Mm-hmm. In basically every state, and by the end of the war, all of the seceding states except for South Carolina will have furnished federal troops to fight in the Civil War. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that it's not it's not a monolith. The South is not monolithic in any Does way. Does South Carolina have no federal troops in the Civil War? No white. Okay. Yeah. yeah, but there are USTC troops. While we're... Are we still recording? Yeah. Oh, okay. Why would gonna, I stop? I thought you were going to cut me off. I was like, oh. Okay. North Carolina voted unanimously for they secession. They did. They you want to touch I on think... that? Because they, they, they're they one of the last, they're the second to last to leave, yeah. and it's unanimous. It's I, I, again, think it's a nail in the coffin at that point because Virginia leaves, leave, South Carolina has already left. You've got pressure, pressure from South Carolina. And, I mean, one thing that was very, I guess, telling as I was trying to prepare for this was I looked back at our census from 1860, mm-hmm. and I looked I looked at all the statistics combined. I didn't go through each state and you try and calculate everybody, but I wanted to find the statistics. So our population at that time for the 1860 census, the free white population was over 26 million. Mm-hmm. Okay, the free colored was over 488,000 for the enslaved people that were in America. That's just shy of four million, and then for the Native Americans that were in America at that point, it's 44,000. Now, that totals, in all, about 31 million people, mm-hmm. like human beings yep. in America at that point. The top three states with the largest white population, New York, Pennsylvania, and Ohio. Tennessee ranks the 10th highest with 826,000. The top three states for the largest free colored population was Maryland, Virginia, and Pennsylvania. Virginia ranked second. I thought that was hmm. absolutely astounding. I wasn't surprised with Maryland and Pennsylvania. I was like, okay, that kind of tracks. That tracks a lot. But Virginia had 58,000 free people of color. Hmm. So I think what would also be a really good thing for us to include in this episode is a little bit about, well, why the southern states are seceding. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think... Well, it's because Lincoln's a tyrant. Or, or. <laughs> and they want to preserve slavery. Because Lincoln's going to get rid of slavery. Yeah. Because that's they they say that is his. Because they initial... think he's the party of John C. Fremont. He thinks so. You had to bring up Fremont again. Please. I love Fremont. So Bailey went 
through and found the declarations of causes. See, one of the shortcomings of an argument with somebody who will shout and shout and shout and shout and scream and scream and scream is that ordinance of secession doesn't say anything about because you're looking at the wrong document. Mm -hmm. Don't look at the ordinance. That's a legal document that's put together by legislators. So as we read through the declaration of causes, um, we've picked three that kind of signify um, what the southern states were leaving for. They're some of the best examples for the reasons and the causes in which these states are seceding. So we've chosen Mississippi, Arkansas, and Texas, but I encourage you to go to go read some. And we're as we're reading through these, we're going to read through them verbatim, um, but we're picking through some of the highlights of them because some of them are quite long, like Texas got mm-hmm. long-winded. Um, I don't know about Arkansas, but Mississippi kept it short and sweet and to the point. Yep. They come out first in saying, in this momentous step, which our state has taken of dissolving its connection with the government of which we so long formed a part, it is but just that we should declare the prominent reasons which have induced our course. Number one, first thing, second sentence in this, it says our position is thoroughly identified with the institution of slavery, the greatest material interest of the world. They have stated their declaration of why they're leaving. Right there. And then they continue to go through, they pull out 16 points One of the other reasons that they start to list off is saying the hostility to this institution commenced before the adoption of the Constitution, and it was manifested in the well-known ordinance of 1787 in regard to the Northwestern Territory. Second, they say the feeling increased until in 1819 to 1820, it deprived the South of more than half of the vast territory acquired from France, and they just continued to go on after that, listing several different key things that we've already talked about earlier in the podcast about all of these compromises and stuff like that and saying this has been the deterioration of the institution of slavery. Last, they say, utter subjugation waits us in the union if we should consent no longer to remain in it. It is not a matter of choice but necessity. We must either submit to degradation and and to the loss of property worth four billions of money or we must secede from the union framed by our fathers to secure this as well as every other species of property. For far less cause than this, our fathers separated from the crown of England. Our decision is made. We follow their footsteps. We embrace the alternative of separation. And for these reasons, here stated, we resolve to maintain our rights with the full consciousness of justice, of our course, and the undoubting belief of our ability to maintain it. Straight out the gate. You say it's about slavery. Yep. We're sticking to it. That and, then is the, and then they the compare reason. themselves to the founders. Yes. Yeah. All right. What about Texas? Yeah. Because um, I figured it's appropriate that you should read Texas. Yeah. It, the, the thing that surprised me the most is they There's, come right out the gate and they say the 2017 Houston Astros cheated. So, uh, well done, Texas. Uh, At least self-awareness. They were about a, they were like 160 years early, but uh, they knew. All right, but seriously. So, Texas, February 2nd, 1861. Third paragraph. The first paragraph is just boring legalities. The second paragraph is just talking about the people of Texas on this day, blah, 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 blah. 
um, talking about where they join the Confederacy. Third paragraph, they say, she, as in, the as in Texas, was received as a commonwealth holding, maintaining and protecting the institution known as Negro slavery, the servitude of the African to the white, white race within her limits, a relation that had existed from the first settlement of her wilderness by the white race, and which her people intended should exist in all future time. Her institutions and geographical position established the strongest ties between her and the other slave-holding states of the Confederacy. Those ties have been strengthened by association. So that is very... Uh, to the point. To the point. Um, they also mention, uh, in one of the last paragraphs of this, they state... That in this free government, all white men are and of right ought to be entitled to equal civil and political rights. That the servitude of the African race as existing in these states is mutually beneficial to both bond and free and is abundantly authorized and justified by the experience of mankind and the, and the revealed will of the almighty creator as recognized by all Christian nations while the destruction of the existing relations between these two races as advocated by our sectional enemies would bring inevitable calamities upon both and desolation upon the 15 slave-holding states. Wow, that's a... <laughs> they put it right out there. Yeah, they put it right out there. It's plain. It's, it's right in front of you. It, it, there's no question into why any... Any state secedes at this point. Mm -hmm. They're quite not cutthroat. It's not the right word, but they're they're direct. They are direct. Very and direct. Also, if you listen to me read that and you were like, "That's not how that word is pronounced," just know I am dyslexic and it is very challenging for me to read documents tried, out loud. Tried really As a disclaimer hard. by Bill Clark. <laughs> he tried real hard. An attempt was made. You, you didn't see the way that his face was flexing to try and get some of those words out. Look, last it night was. I had to practice. I was like, this is this makes me feel awful that I have to practice reading the Declaration of Secession. You know, you, you got to practice. You got to, a chance just... to sound it out and work through it. Yeah. We just found Arkansas yeah. because Bailey didn't print it. So you know, here we go. Dry run. So it's my fault. I printed two out of the yeah, three. Yeah, you know, whatever. We, the people of the state of Arkansas, in convention assembled, in the view of the unfortunate and distracted condition of our once happy and prosperous country and of the alarming dissensions existing between northern and southern sections thereof, and desiring that a fair and equitable adjustment of the same may be made, do hereby declare the following to be just causes of complaint on the part of the people of the southern states against their brethren of the northern or non-slaveholding states." So already in the open, mm -hmm. they've told you, mm -hmm. this is our thesis statement, and here's where we're going. Mm -hmm. Number one, right out the Number gate, one. The people of the northern states have organized a political party, purely sectional in its character, the central and controlling idea of which is hostility to the institution of African slavery as it exists in southern states. And that party has elected a president and a vice president of the United States pledged to administer the government upon principles inconsistent with the rights and subversive of the interest of the people of the southern states. Number three. 
They have declared that Congress possesses under the Constitution and ought to exercise the power to abolish slavery in the territories in the District of Columbia and in the forts, arsenals, and dockyards of the United States within the limits of slaveholding states. Number six, they have degraded American citizens by placing them upon an equality with Negroes at the ballot box. So they give six reasons as to why they <laughs> want to leave. But then, interestingly, they tell the federal government what they can do to make things right. That's not good. Mm. This is fun. This because is this is like, well, we'll just have to rewrite the whole Constitution. But whatever. Number one. The president and the vice president of the United States shall each be chosen alternately from a slaveholding and a non-slaveholding state, but in no case shall both be chosen from slaveholding or non-slaveholding states. Okay. Balance of power, balance of ideas. Yeah, for Arkansas, I'm like, all right. Number three, Congress shall have no power to legislate upon the subject of slavery except to protect the citizen in his right of property in slaves. Okay. So you can't do anything except be pro-slavery in that instance. Yep. Yep. Number seven, the elective franchise and the right to hold office, whether federal, state, territorial, or municipal, shall not be exercised upon persons of African race or in the whole or in part. Can't be black and hold office. Oh, okay. It can never be part of an elective body. Too many words for me. Yeah. I was like, what? All right, and then, oh, you know, for what it's worth. Here we go. This is how they close out. Number four, resolved further that a committee of five delegates of this convention be appointed to prepare an address of the people of the United States, urging upon them the importance of a united effort on the part of patriotic citizens of all sections and parties to save the country from the dangers which impend it and which threaten its destruction, and especially to arrest the reckless and fanatical spirit of sectionalism north and south, which, if not arrested, will inevitably involve us in a bloody civil war. Well. Not only is this a declaration of causes, it's a declaration declaration of of war. war. They're Mm -hmm. saying, this is why we're going Mm -hmm. to war. This is why we are leaving you. This is what we want at the end of it. And... Reading through these documents and that website that I pulled mine from was literally called civilwarcauses.com. Mm-hmm. Very available. Yes. And it's a transcription of every single state declaration, state uh, resolution of causes. It's got all the ordinances on there. These things are readily available primary documents. They can be found with a Google search. Mm-hmm. In two minutes, I found exactly what I needed. Mm-hmm. And yet today there are still people that will say, well, you know, the federal government couldn't have stopped them from seceding from the union. Yes, they could. I had a guest uh, argue with me and another co-worker about secession, and I quoted Mississippi's line. And he threw his arms in the air and yelled at me. Exact quote. Just because they said it doesn't mean they mean it. Well, and, and that's the thing. People will very often jump to... <laughs> Uh, if you then roll, what did they mean? If I, you have to counter with Alexander Stevens, the cornerstone mm-hmm. of the Confederacy, they'll say, well, you know, if Alexander Stevens would have just kept his mouth shut. Or, I also quoted that, and he <laughs> said, he's not the president, he's not the leader. I said, he's the vice president. Yeah. yeah. 
He's still a central figure in the Confederate. Yes. Anyways. Yeah. Um, I think this has been a really, I, I think listeners, hopefully, this has been an informative uh, kind of uh, exploration of some primary documents. Uh, that's something that I think is really important for us to understand our civil wars, to understand mm-hmm. the reasonings and the causes, um, and to be able to find something that's this available. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's something that we'll do in the off time. Um, oh, by the way, you didn't know that, dear listener. We're going on our summer hiatus because it's about to get really busy for the Battle of Franklin Trust uh, between all three sites and all of you coming here, which we know you will do. The Dispatch, the official podcast of the Battle of Franklin Trust, is brought to you by you. When you come visit our site, you are helping maintain the dispatch. Thank you. You could buy us another soundboard. That'd be real great. Um, Anyhow, so we are going on our summer hiatus. In the meantime, look for the occasional drop of an audio clip that we'll put together. Maybe it's just as simple as reading some of these primary source documents in their entirety. Uh, One project that I've long wanted to take on is the Lincoln-Douglas debates. I know that it's a lot. It's a bunch to do. And... Two out of the three of us are dyslexic, so we don't have... Really Those are also hour-long debates. You are. Yeah. Ex- they are more than that. Um, I've wanted to take that on. I've wanted to do it. And I think that you know the summer hiatus gives us that time. We've got more episodes ready for you for another season. Uh, so be on the lookout for those things. We hope that you've enjoyed this season of The Dispatch as... Um, frantic as somewhat it may have seemed on the other end. Um, Well, thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to The Dispatch, and uh, we'll see you on the battlefields.